0: Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us. And on the program this time, we're going to spend the full hour digging into how the Navy is taking a more holistic view of its global supply chain the Naval Sustainment System Supply or NSSS is focused on bringing commercial best practices into the Navy's decisions about supplying spare parts and maintaining weapon systems. One way to do that is put a monetary value on what it means to have mission capable weapon systems like fighter aircraft. And once you do that, the thinking goes, it becomes much easier to track the return on investment for every readiness dollar the Navy spends. But there's a lot more to NSSS, and to get into the details, our guest is Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos, the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command. Admiral, thanks for taking the time for this, and and we'll spend the bulk of our, our, our conversation here on NSS supply, but I thought you could start us off a little bit by talking a little bit about the lineage of the the NSS construct, because I know this is not the first one. There have been other NSSs in naval history, I think, including in the naval aviation community. So can you give us just a minute or two on what that construct looks like, again, the lineage of of NSS, before we start talking about how it applies to the the supply enterprise?
1: Sure, absolutely. I'd I'd be pleased to do that. You know, going back to uh, when Secretary Mattis was the Secretary of Defense, and towards, uh, I think it was probably around the 18 time frame, 2018, I could be off a little bit, where he really challenged the services to be able to look at their fighter aircraft and strive to obtain 80% mission capability of those fighters, okay? And that was really in alignment uh, with the national defense strategy, was about increasing our lethality. And there's really two components of lethality which is one, making sure that your in-service assets are ready to fight, and two, being able to make sure that you are continuously modernizing those in-service assets to our most uh, critical uh, capabilities that we need, uh, and particularly for the Navy, uh, to be able to get after any of the capabilities that our adversaries have in the waters where it matters most. So with that, we started off with the F-18 in the Navy. And it was also a little bit of a journey, if you recall, back in those timeframes where uh, through the Congress and OSD and the Secretary of the Navy, we all knew that we needed to spend greater emphasis on sustainment of our weapon systems. Traditionally, we have oftentimes had very clear acquisition program baseline, spending a lot of time on acquisition. And sometimes uh, the focus, uh, it was a little bit more challenging on the sustainment side. So that was kind of the backdrop. And as the Navy started marching towards improving the mission capability of our f teams it started this journey. This journey eventually led us to a performance to plan initiative, P2P aviation. Which was really uh driving both the 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 Navy, the whole of Navy and the secretariat, the acquisition side to be able to bore sight focus into are we getting the performance from our weapon systems that we plan for, and are all of our operations, our activities, and our investments are they aligned properly? to achieve the performance that we desire. And that was the P2P effort. It focused in on data and analytics and assuring that we had alignment across the whole Navy. And those P2P efforts continue to this day. So P2P Aviation started it. But what we found out in the P2P uh, spectrum, if you will, is we have many, many supporting business processes uh, that actually uh, from the squadron level all the way up through, again, the foundry or the force generation part of the Navy, their type commanders, et cetera, our fleet readiness centers, all the way into the program offices uh, and our, uh, our PEOs, and frankly, out into the defense industrial base. And so the NSS, Naval Sustainment System Aviation, was geared towards looking at those business processes and dissecting them and looking for opportunities, where high leverage opportunities where we could go in and make step change increases to enhance our performance. That was P2P aviation plus NSS aviation. And since then, we have gone down a track, uh, really as we elevate much of what we're finding in P2P aviation and NSS aviation, we elevate that into the C-suite with four-star leadership at the table, and then we, we work together to be able to remove barriers, identify barriers, embrace the red, and really make the changes that we need to enhance our performance. When I came along uh, as the commander of the Naval Supply Systems Command and had a discussion with VCNO, the uh, VCNO asked me where I'd like to take the Naval Supply Systems Command. And I responded with, I'd like to take it deeper and broader across Navy's end-to-end supply chains. And so when we take a step back uh, away from aviation for a moment, we also have a very vast maritime uh, uh, you know, portfolio to include submarines, to include surface ships, to include aircraft carriers, many of which in that, that broad spectrum have nuclear capabilities on board there with their nuclear reactors. All of those have deep, deep uh, supply chains affiliated with them. And so I thought it would be uh, I thought it would be advantageous uh, for Navy to be able to look more broadly across all of our supply chains end to end to be able to elevate those up into a four star Navy corporate forum uh, to allow allow the four stars, the three stars, and many others to understand with greater clarity how important our supply chains are. And they are, in my view, strategic platforms. And so we know that upstream in our program offices, which have very close linkages into the defense industrial race, and very close linkages all the way down to the tactical edge at our squadrons, there are decisions that must be made at those those upstream areas which have downstream effects. And so NSS supply, if you will, was an was is an effort to be able to look across all those all those portfolios, if you will, and to be able to see some common supply chain challenges and opportunities we have to elevate that up to the C suite, just like commercial industry does, so that we can start to dissect and understand our, our end-to-end supply chains much better than we have in the past. Does that make sense?
0: It, it does. And it sounds like in both cases, both you know, across the vast supply enterprise and on specifically the aviation side of the house, really the nut of the problem that you're trying to solve here is a lot of those decisions that you talked about were being made in a very fragmented way without any kind of corporate visibility over them. Is that about right?
1: That's right. So, you know, again, the Navy is just, a you know, a huge ginormous entity. And for the most part, we do an exceptional job of 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 being great in many things. but when we take a step back, many of the decisions have been made uh, in a sometimes in an uncoordinated fashion because we've allowed ourselves to be driven by for for instance, programming decisions or budgeting decisions. and in in my view, we lacked a Navy corporate forum at the four-star level to be able to really dive into and dissect some of these you know more tactical level issues which have huge consequences in our, our overall health of our programs and so through that Navy corporate forum uh, that, the, the, that our VCNO and four stars have created we are now able to elevate on a very frequent basis. I mean, we go through NSS, uh, Naval Sustainment System, battle rhythm events on a monthly basis with the four stars and three stars, which is quite phenomenal considering how valuable their time is. And, And that includes the P2P efforts. P2Ps are about on an every six week basis. So we have our whole of Navy, all levels of leadership, you know, those in uniform and those within the Secretariat engaged in a more coordinated, deliberate fashion, you know, to dissect these issues, to remove barriers, and, and to make well informed based on the data decisions to the benefit of Navy if that makes sense.
0: Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos is the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command. He's back with us to talk a lot more about this new effort called Naval Sustainment System Supply after a short break. This is on DOD, on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serdu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. Our guest is Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos, the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command, talking about some of the ways the Navy's increasing readiness and saving money through a new effort called Naval Sustainment System Supply, launched just about a year ago. And as we were uh, discussing just before the break, one of the main objectives is to take what had been some pretty fragmented decisions about spare parts stocks and maintenance and readiness and raise them to a more corporate level. And Admiral, I, I think one of the real innovations here and one of the tools that you're using to make those corporate decisions is the cash basis that you're applying to this and assigning a Cash value to the readiness that you're getting for each one of those supply decisions, I have never heard of anyone in DoD anywhere being able to try and assign a monetary value to readiness outputs. Talk a bit about how you do that
1: I, I would love to i you know first off, I can recall back you know thirty years ago when I was in uh, the, at the University of San Diego, I was a business major and and I recall taking a supply chain or two class. And I recall back in those days, the professors would opine that if you want to grow up to become a CEO of a company, don't get into supply chain, get into one of the other disciplines. And, and, and I, I just recall vividly hearing that, in, at least in that business school supply chain hadn't yet elevated you know into the C-suite. Well, 30 years later, there is no doubt that supply chain management is in our corporate C-suites because corporations recognize the value of their supply chains. Uh, are, are, There's so much value and benefit to the company's competitive advantage by having uh, a well um, oiled and coordinated and synchronized supply chain. And so I recall that, so now here, as I took over NAVSUP, we started to look at commercial best practices, go out and look at several several uh, top-in-class companies as an example. We looked at many. One of them that was particularly interesting to us was Caterpillar. And Caterpillar had a very interesting uh, figure of merit that they used to evaluate their supply chains. And, and what we did was we modified that uh, figure of merit that Caterpillar used and we essentially militarized, if you will, and we applied it, the principles of it, to our F-18s or to our ships. And, and really what it did was it, it allowed us to monetize the value of readiness as an example. Um, well, f- first of all, I should say, to monetize the value of readiness and to, and to compare it to the amount of cash that we put into the system to achieve that readiness. And so if you can imagine uh, taking a fleet of F-18s, you know, over 600 of them, putting a monetary value on there, annualizing that based on their uh, useful life, annualizing that, and then looking on the other side of the equation to go, how much did it cost us in terms of cash outlays to be able to generate that readiness? So we we incorporated what we call a cost of goods sold into our formula. A cost of goods sold was, was, uh, we bifurcated between commercial uh, work that's done for us, which we merely stroke a check to a commercial vendor to be able to repair or to do new procurements for the uh, parts that we need. And then we looked at the organic cost of goods sold for our FRCs, our Fleet Readiness Centers, and how many people do they need? What are the test benches? What are all the costs that go into organic repair? We also put into this equation for the first time where we really looked at the value of our inventory for that particular uh, weapon systems, where we, we then computed a capital charge for that because you know to hold that inventory, there are costs affiliated with holding that inventory. And we did this all on an annual basis to be able to come up with a figure of merit which is how much, how, for how many dollars that you put into the system, what type of readiness are you getting out? So it's a figure of merit. And then what it allows us to do is make very deliberate decisions to understand that if we put another dollar into the, uh, the, the, the force generation, readiness generation side of the equation, what are we gonna see on the, the value of the readiness side? Are we gonna get more capable aircraft, mission capable aircraft? So in the past that was very difficult for us to analyze. Everybody would often say, what's the return on investment? But we really didn't have a formula to help us do that. So that's exactly what our supply effect in this figure of merit is. So as we look at this over the course of time, we'll be able to see how is that figure of merit moving? And if it is moving in a positive direction, that is good. Now break. Let me give you something just to chew on here. Mm-hmm. When Caterpillar underwent their transformation for their supply chains, utilizing their figure of merit, it was a six-year effort. When they first looked at the value of their equipment, and mind you, they have very heavy equipment. We're not just talking tractors, we're talking mining equipment that has a life cycle with it. Large, large pieces that are deployed across the world, which is why we chose Caterpillar ultimately, because they have some similarities As we do as a Navy but when we started to look at at their journey they first started off with a quote-unquote negative 1 billion dollar figure of merit and over the course of six years they moved that negative 1 billion through their deliberate data-informed decisions to a positive 6 billion dollar Figure merit. Now that's not six billion dollars that was a return to their shareholders or a profit, that was a figure of merit. set that of the decisions that Caterpillar put into their, uh, their, if you will, their their operations, did they get readiness or value from those decisions that they made? And clearly on the Caterpillar journey they increased uh, without a doubt their, their bottom line. Um, uh, their net operating income before uh, uh tax distortions. So it 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 was a it was a a really good approach that we modified from Caterpillar and then applied it to ourselves. We've also looked at some of the other big industries uh that are best in class for instance Royal Caribbean. And we've looked at their figure of merit which is similar to the Caterpillar one. And what is the value that they see out of their figure of merit and so to give you an idea for for royal caribbean uh it was a number that was in the the 28 cents per dollar invested range there that's about the type of performance that they were getting which oh by the way is really good you know we you know have a goal of being able to reach you know a, a uh, an increase in our figure of merit by about five cents per dollar invested over the course of five years now you say five cents per dollar invested isn't that much but when you think of the billions and billions of dollars that we spend in readiness those are actually big huge gains so I hope that helps uh, explain our utilization of this figure of merit to be able to evaluate ourselves by
0: it does mostly but 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 most of what you talked about is measuring inputs right and, and in the Caterpillar example, the, the outputs there are relatively easy to measure. It's relatively easy to know what the net operating income is. In the military context, don't you need to assign some cash value to what you're getting out of the other end? I mean, what, what is a mission-capable F-18 worth compared to not having that mission-capable F-18?
1: Sure. And, then in, and, that's, and that's where the figure of merit helps us out. So as I said, we, we monetize the value of each f 18 over its life cycle we annualize that. And so now we know based on the mission capability that we are getting for that fleet of F-18s. For instance, uh, if we were having uh, a a 50% mission capability rate of our 600 F-18s, and if we made dollar investments into our force generation side which would then result in the mission capability of those aircraft going from 50% to 51 to 52 to 53, we're getting more output from that fleet of f eighteen it 's similar to what Delta Tech ops and some of the other uh, you know commercial airlines uh, view their fleet of aircraft their fleet of aircraft have to be flying in order to generate revenue. Our aircraft need to be mission capable in order to be able to uh, uh, maintain the capabilities uh, that we need to protect the homeland and and make sure that our interests are being upheld, and we can meet all of our our deployments. Uh, across the globe and have enough to be able to surge uh, for any crisis or contingency response that may be needed.
0: Talking with Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos, the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command, there's a lot more of our discussion after another quick break on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbian. And thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Still talking with Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos, the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command, about a very ambitious new project called Naval Sustainment System Supply. It's giving Navy leaders a more holistic view over the entire supply enterprise and some of the readiness decisions that used to get done in a pretty uncoordinated and decentralized fashion. So once you start viewing the supply chain in this way that you've never viewed it before, g- give me some examples of the sorts of decisions it lets you make or, le- or, or or make differently.
1: Sure. So as we you know as we as we look at our supply chain, uh, we organized around because it, it's a vast supply chain. We organized around uh, really you know six pillars, and and those those pillars were a way to help us. of of organize our our unity of effort across the whole Navy. As an example, uh, demand management uh, was one of our pillars. Another one was to optimize our working capital fund portfolio. That's essentially the financial engine that generates the readiness uh, for the fleet. Um, Another one was our organic repair, to be able to optimize our organic repair. Do we have the right mixture of commercial versus organic repair activities Uh, to be able to achieve the readiness that we need. Uh, Another pillar was to increase our end-to-end velocity of our parts going through through the system. Our repair turnaround times were unfortunately very long and not close to commercial best-in-class standards. So through compartmentalizing uh, our supply chains by these pillars, it has allowed us to dive into our business practices uh, with more clarity. As an example, one of the one of the great examples and, and we're just by the way our our NSS supply is is a is a multi year, it's a five year effort. Mm-hmm. We've got fifteen waves. We do three waves per year, fifteen waves, over seventy five initiatives. We just completed wave one. Okay, and we're just starting wave two. So let me give you an example on the demand management aviation. Sure. So demand management aviation is really about reducing the demand of uh, of, if you will, our parts, reducing the demand on our supply chains, and at the same time, increasing the predictability through a variety of things that uh, we may have control over, the design, engineering, maintenance, practices, et cetera. And we found out that by going in, and these, by the way, are cross-functional teams. My demand management aviation pillar is led by Vice Admiral Weitzel and Vice Admiral Peters of NAVAIR. So we've got high-level high level leadership, boresight focused on demand management. And what, what we found out was is by altering, making some simple alterations in our maintenance practices, we could actually reduce the demand. Uh, on on some of our on some of our weapon systems, which meant we weren't having as great number of parts being demanded on the systems and dollars being spent, and we had no detriment to readiness. Another example is we we recently stood up the the Navy recently stood up what was called a Reliability Control Board a couple of years ago, uh, led by uh, Vice Admiral Peters and Navair, and and what we did in NSS supply was we said this is great work that's going on. Let's take it a step further and let's really juice up our data analytics, go down to the BUNO number or the actual airframe at the squadron level, and let's start to analyze what's going on inside the skin of that airplane. So normally on reliability, we in supply would see, oh my goodness, there's a lot of consumption of a particular part. Uh, Perhaps something can be done about that. Maybe we need an engineering change proposal to uh, modify the design of that part. Uh, And often times that came down to an investment decision. It might cost a lot of money to be able to do that. Well, what are those parts that we look at? In the past, we've just looked at parts that if they had a design specification to last 100 hours on the wing of an airplane, and they were only lasting 50 hours on an airplane, that would allow us to go look at those parts and see what we might be able to do to increase the reliability. But what we were also seeing, by looking at the actual airframe itself, the BUNO number of that airframe, we found out, for instance, for on the E-2, there is a part called a power amplification module, a PAM. And there are many PAMs on board the E-2, each E-2. And the design specification, as an example, and I'm just using notional numbers, was to be able to be on the wing of the airplane for 100 hours. And actually, the actual performance observed was 105 hours. So one would say, oh, well, that's within design specifications. There's no need to look here. But what we discovered by looking at the BUNO number was there was a whole host of E-2s in a particular lot of aircraft where that PAM was actually... On wing for 300 hours. Well, why was one only 105 hours, and why were other airplanes achieving 300 hours? Which led us down, uh, you, you know, a hunt for leverage within, <laughs> within those airframes, and we discovered that there were other ancillary issues on those airframes that that may have to do with. Uh, wiring uh, maintenance practices and other other things so that was just a a brief example of how the demand management was able to dissect a real world problem and then be able to solve the problem and by the way give feedback into the supply system so normally our supply systems that we use our our Navy ERP relies upon many many quarters of demand data to be able to alter it's buy recommendation or its repair recommendations for our parts. So we might have to wait you know several years before we would see a change in the actual buy recommendations. Well, what we're doing now in this demand management aviation pillar is we're able to now devise much tighter feedback loops and mechanisms so that we can go into our ERP and actually make actually make adjustments, uh, within the ERP to be able to account for those uh, those improvements that 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 we've observed, and what's really good about it is it's done in a very coordinated and governed way to include the program offices, to include you know our type commander, the Air Air Forces, to include the squadrons, so that we all go in and the supply side, so that we all go in understanding uh, w- what decisions we're going to make, uh, so that we can actually benefits that we can actually benefit from it and use that valuable, uh, you know, repair dollars or procurement dollars to go after something else that's a high priority. I hope that makes sense to you.
0: It sure does. And when, when you first brought up demand management, I thought where you were going was something as simple as reducing orders so that you do not have excessive supplies of a particular part sitting around in warehouses more than you need. It sounds much more, though, that, that this is all about really understanding how long a part actually lasts on a wing um, and, 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 and synchronizing that information with the supply chain so that you replace a part when it needs to be replaced in a conditions-based maintenance kind of way.
1: That that is certainly part of it. And you know, there there are literally hundreds of thousands of of parts that you know our, our weapon systems, you know, operate from. And so this is this is just a real deliberate effort driven by data analytics to help us boresight into problem areas. And really, we kind of look at them as, an oppor- as opportunity areas. <laughs> and so we've actually inculcated across you know the whole of Navy to embrace the red. Don't shy away from the red, embrace the red. Find us problems, and then let's go out together and, and solve those problems. So we, we like it when we find areas of red, if you will, so that we can understand what are the real drivers there, how can we remove barriers, and what it takes for us to be able to improve performance. Repair turnaround times is another huge area, right? So think about an end-to-end supply chain. And if you have a repair turnaround time that in some cases exceeds 300 days before a unit turns the not ready for issue part, the broken part into the system, the system has to go out and, uh, you know, send it to a commercial vendor to repair, And if that repair turnaround time is 300 plus days, you see how we need more inventory in the system because we have ships and aircraft squadrons operating across planet Earth, right? So if we can reduce that turnaround time from 300 days down to 100 days, now that requires me to have less inventory in the system because I have much higher velocity uh, in the system, and that 's another thing that we 're going after after our end to end velocity pillar and we've we 've seen some great gains that 's a close working relationship with industry that we have by the way, and industry has responded uh, to to being able to help us out and so far, our first wave yielded some great results for both the maritime and and the uh, aviation side as an example. Our, what we call repair turnaround time or RTAT reduction in the maritime space we saw a 48% reduction on 400 of our of our parts 400 actual discrete line items of our parts which really were important to us and industry responded and they did it at no cost on the aviation side we've seen a 37% reduction on 568 of These NSNs that are really, really important, and this work is continues to go on and on. We keep adding more parts, you know, into the into the RTAT reduction, and and through working closely with industry, we start to understand what their barriers are. What are their barriers that preclude them from reducing their turnaround times, and how can we work together to be able to make, you know, the the performance of the overall system better for everybody.
0: I know our time is short, but last thing I wanted to ask you before you go, sir, is um, I know you've only finished one wave here. You only only been up and running since October, but but any dollar figures you can point to at this point in terms of cost avoidance or cost savings in these early early stages?
1: Yeah, that, that that's great. In fact, this this morning at my my morning update brief, we track this by the way continuously um, uh, across the Naval Supply Systems Command and in our optimized working capital portfolio where we have what we call a cash war room we've already today these are the more uh, numbers as of this morning we've realized about over 400 million dollars in cost either savings or avoidance by being able to just go in and really scrub hard our requirements that are out there so all these all these things that i i i I mentioned to you for instance the f18 PAM example reduce, uh, results in a lower demand signal so that means we can go back into the supply system into our computers and we may have had you know many PAMs that are on order uh, or planned to have on order well we can now reduce those orders and really just focus in on the repair of our existing stocks um, and and that that gives us that yields us uh, either a realizable cost savings or avoidance. And like I said, over four hundred million dollars uh, that we've um, that we've yielded so far. We had a stretch goal <laughs> to be able to to try to find five hundred million dollars over two years, We're at over four hundred four hundred nineteen million in just since we started. Okay so none of our folks thought we would even achieve 500 million and that was a big big stretch goal and the V C and O uh, and Admiral Gumbleton of FMB really asked us to to make a huge stretch goal and they challenged us with 500 million dollars in 2 years and like i said you know we're getting a lot of Positive, realizable gains that we're seeing just in the short amount of time that NSS has been up and running.
0: Usually, when you I crush a go- example, yeah. Usually, when you crush a goal like that, somebody asks you to set a higher goal. So, what's the new goal?
1: <laughs> well, we're gonna, you know, one of one of the things in this process improvement, right? I said so. The NSS, the whole NSS as a whole is about coming in and making process improvements, step change, transformations. In our business processes, so part of this is we are we are going in, and now what we're doing is we're we're involving all the comptrollers that are involved to be able to certify that we actually achieve those savings. And again, as of this morning, you know we were on our way heading towards that 419 million dollars of actually certifying. That means when I say certifying, that means all of the comptrollers are in 100% agreement and alignment. That uh, the decisions that we've made uh, and the actions that we're taking are going to result in realizable gains. So we don't know what the next, what it's going to be next, but I tell you what, this is a this cash war room is without a doubt what what we call a, a, a best practice for us, and we're now institutionalizing this, and I can see this going forward, uh, you know, hopefully into perpetuity. Uh, because it's it's really how we ought to be doing business. You know, the supply chains are dynamic. They change. The operating environment changes. And we've got to be agile enough and to know our business well enough and to be rolling our sleeves up and getting into the contracts with our vendors and suppliers and our organic repair facilities to understand when things changes. can we be agile to be able to make adjustments on the fly that are, A, to the benefit of the Navy and, obviously, the benefit of you know frankly the taxpayers because we don't want to be spending precious dollars more than we have to we want to apply those precious dollars to the most pressing readiness issues that we have uh, you know within our end -end supply chains we're all very excited about this Uh, I I tell you I've got an enormous amount of support across the whole of Navy and um, and this is a this is a great path. We are we are learning together, we're raising the bar across Navy on really deeply understanding how critical our end to end supply chains are. And frankly, we've gotten a lot of great interest and cooperation from our commercial vendors. You know, we've got in supply alone we have over nine hundred, you know, commercial vendors out there that support us and so Uh, We need them uh, just as they need us, and we've got to make them successful. And by us getting better at our business practices and processes, it gives them clearer demand signal. It will smooth out demand for them and give them something that they can rely on. Uh, And that's what we aim to do, is to be better customers to our supplier base, both internal to Navy and external.
0: Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos is the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command, joining us to talk about Naval Sustainment System Supply, NSSS. One more break here, and when we come back, we'll hear a bit more about the origins of that NSS construct in the naval aviation community. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servative. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And as we bring the show to a close, we'll end up sort of where we started our conversation with Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos, the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command. As we talked about, the Naval Sustainment System Supply that's seen some success in the past year has its origins in the naval aviation community. That NSS construct started with NSS Aviation. And to get a bit more detail on those origins, we'll wrap up the show with some excerpted remarks from Rear Admiral John Meyer, the commander of Naval Air Force Atlantic. He spoke recently at the Navy League's annual Sea Air Space Exhibition.
2: NSS started with NSS Aviation, and it was a long path. We we're about three years into that path. It really started with the F-18, again with General Mattis's guidance or challenge, really, to DOD to improve the material condition of our aircraft in that process there was a similar slide similar to the the pillars that uh, are in NSS supply but for aviation those were O level reform so reform at the deck plate levels FRC so our readiness centers our depot level maintenance engineering level reform um, also governance uh, a whole lot of analytics that go under that, but uh, a fundamental aspect of that is the supply level reform. And I would argue out of the supply level reform of NSSA is born this whole uh, new NSS. And I'm here to tell you we have benefited greatly. So my, I'll keep my comments brief and to questions later if you'd like. but. I'm the recipient of tremendous support from the initiatives that have already happened in the supply chain. For those of us in the the supply industry or for aviation, we understand AVCAL, which is the volume of parts that you have on hand to support aviation assets. And it's a volume of parts. In the grand scheme, it doesn't mean anything unless the part that I need is in that pile of parts and the analysis that's been going on in this process, uh, the rigor that goes in to expand the definition of that AvCal, but it is some of this ability to mine, capture, and utilize the data with these effectiveness metrics that is absolutely driving that. I'm here to tell you in the last four aircraft carrier deployments, we have met our mission-capable goals 100% of the time on our aircraft carriers. That's pretty impressive. We're not uh, quite there yet on our amphibious readiness groups, but that's the next initiative that we're pushing at Air Land, as we're going to drive that same exact material condition, uh, expectation all the way down to the deck plates. Uh, and I'm here to tell you, it absolutely resonates. Uh, the biggest aspects of that from my perspective are, uh, do I have the right part on hand when something breaks and I need a part? If I've got it on hand, great. If I don't have it on hand, how quickly can I get that part? So there's this transit time and some of that uh, clearly depends on where you are in the world. If you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, that's harder. So you probably wanna have a, a larger uh, supply of parts and some of those challenges. But it's important to understand too that we're not running a business. There are business-like aspects here, but businesses don't necessarily find themselves sailing into harm's way, preparing to fly and operate in a denied environment where I may not be able to get the logistics hit from a supply ship I may not be able to get the COD hit or the helicopter flight with critical parts, and we've gotta be able to repair those things ourselves on time, aggressive, we've gotta have the right stuff uh, on the shelves. Um, so there's really a symbiotic relationship of the great support that NSSA continues to get from the supply core, and the benefit of all of that uh, data and, and really driving efficiency and ultimately cost out of our current readiness model. But there's the other reciprocal part where my team is wholly supporting uh, the Supply Corps' efforts in this regard, because that's really where we start to get into driving cost out of the business. Readiness is not just throw money at it, Um, it is an expensive business that we're in, but squeezing efficiency and cost is essential uh, in the current fiscal environment.
0: Again, some excerpts from remarks by Rear Admiral John Meyer, the commander of Naval Air Force Atlantic, speaking at this year's Sea Air Space Exhibition in National Harbor, Maryland.
2: The focus from Air Lant and Naval Air Forces is really about generating mission-capable aircraft, the aircraft that we need to be able to fly, fight, win, but also to produce new pilots, but it also is tied to our aircraft carrier readiness as well. And the, those are the two principal aspects. The ultimate outcome that we measure for that in terms of aircraft is the output would be mission-capable aircraft. And we also track fully mission-capable aircraft. Since we've started the NSS Aviation Initiative, we've made substantial uh, improvements. Matter of fact, we hit the threshold of the 80% threshold for Rhinos first, that was the first aircraft that we started. We hold that today with a little bit of variation here and there. We expanded into Growlers, we're now doing P8s, H60s. P8s are probably our greatest success story as we're meeting not only uh, full mission capable and partial mission capable, we've exceeded those levels for the the P8 and it's really an impressive uh, aspect. The E2 community started after that and the E2 mission capable rate doubled in about two and a half months. And that doubling was really, you know, so perhaps a little bit of a follow on to Pete's answer, you know, that old adage of that which interests my boss fascinates me. So when the four-star VCNO down and in is driving some of this, um, that really has energized the entire system. That's necessary to an extent because of this supporting supported the supporting-supported relationship, the C2, the command and control, the lines by which the organization operates, they don't really connect until you get up to that highest level at the VCNO level and uh, drives that. Um, But the e 2 community responded incredibly fast. Um, Another point was made earlier um, about whether is it a symptom of a supply chain issue or is it a deeper issue that gets into the engineering aspect, and I think the E2D community is a perfect example. While we very, very rapidly improved our mission-capable rates, we have run into some challenges on the fully mission-capable rates. And the issue there on the surface, it looks like it is a non-mission capable or partial mission capable supply issue. But when some components only work at a tenth of what the engineering analysis says those components should be, that's really where the reliability control board comes in and now drills down and identifies those parts. Well, yeah, the the reliability of this component has caused a supply chain problem because we expected them to last for 10,000 hours on wing and they only last 1,000. Uncovering those issues, that's really the way ahead. And and I will tell you, um, since NSS Supply has taken over, uh, some of the initiatives like the end-to-end velocity, which is a, a huge success story right out of the gate, has made a dramatic improvement in the number of NINs, the parts that we have on. I mean, it's been a prime driver. I think some of the fundamental work was done in aviation, but now it's, you're expanding that across all of the, the communities. Uh, but it is that piece in and of itself that's given the the chain, the supply chain the responsiveness that we need. And then the last point I'd make to that is uh, this is not just uh, Navy, uh, Aviation, It is naval and uh, really excited about the prospect and the work that's going on right now uh, as we expand into the MB-22 series, which is Navy, Marine Corps. And if uh, the Air Force comes, it's also a joint opportunity for us to drive our best practices.
0: Rear Admiral John Meyer, the commander of Naval Air Force Atlantic, speaking at this year's Sea Air Space Exhibition in National Harbor, Maryland, about the first iteration of that Naval Sustainment System construct we've been discussing this hour. Earlier, we talked with Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos, the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command, about a newer adaptation of NSS, NSS Supply. If you missed that conversation, this week's full show will be available at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DoD, or find us on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. That's it for this edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbe. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.